welcome to The Author's Tale, casual conversations with prominent New Zealand writers. This is part three of award-winning poet and novelist James Norcliffe's tale, recorded at James's home nestled in the Port Hills of Canterbury under COVID-19 social distancing conditions, hence the less-than-perfect sound quality. We start this episode revisiting his hilarious poem, The True Story of Soap, and other equally tantalising poetical commentaries on the world, before we move on to his fabulous novels. Hilarious! The true story of soap, and it's one which I will actually—I'd love to get you to read the entire thing. <laughs> but just for now, I love this bit. So clearly, the poem is about soap. Um, but you've got humans and cats, are each fastidious creatures. But as we cannot easily reach our backsides, soap is a convenient extension of the tongue. <laughs> 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 Absolutely brilliant, but very true. Wallace Stevens wrote a very famous, a very delicate poem called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Blackbird. So I thought I'd do the same thing with, with soap. soap. <laughs> soap, it's just so funny. Mm. Um, and the testimony of the rack, I oh, thought yes. that was extremely good too. I might, can I get you to read a bit of it? Yeah, um, sure. And actually, you might as well read the whole thing, would you? Not at all. The Testimony of the Rack. It's a very dark poem. It is dark, isn't it? But isn't it <laughs> fabulously dark? Testimony of the Rack. My wood is naturally black heart hardwood with sharp chamfered edges and a shiny finish. My screws are long, threaded to a point and neatly countersunk. My spokes so beautifully turned and wheels which in turn turn beautifully, all creaks and green groans long oiled out of me. I am so bloody real I want to touch myself, as precise as an oriental spirit house and touch wood as well preserved, respected. Of course my real purpose is to pull the extremities of these fleshy poopers, to make some sense out of their soft and messy writhing. So what if I do sometimes stretch the truth a little? Wouldn't you prefer these brilliant butterflies? Stretch the mm. truth. <laughs> uh, spirit House is a thing we saw examples of in a museum somewhere in China. And the Chinese are ancestor worshippers, of course, and there's all sorts of um, reference paid in daily life to those that have gone before. And uh, in traditional Chinese houses of the rich, they used to have these things called spirit houses, which are tiny little, like, almost like dolls' houses, mm. but uh, of a Chinese architecture, utterly beautiful, beautiful, to house, mm. I guess, the memories of those ancestors. Mm. I thought that was just fabulous. Thank you. So moving on, mm. so I've got here as well, I've got rat tickling. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to say about rat tickling? Because that was one of your earlier works as well, wasn't it? Yes, yes. yes. So that was 2003. Mm. So that's different again, quite different to Dr. D. Oh, yes, yes. And this one here, uh, um, I just think I've got written here sort of the, just the, the, just the commentaries on everyday life and like, in the cycle yeah. of life. Yeah, there was a book after Dr. D and before that one called, it was a double book actually, VUP did, Fergus Barrowman did for me. He was going to publish a book called Blue Heart. And then um, I sent, while that was sort of, Still in the wings, I'd been very prolific, and I sent him another manuscript. And then 
I got a note back saying, well, we like the second one too, but how about we join the two together because we're sick and tired of having slim volumes, but I don't have yeah. a fat volume. And that's how um, A Kind of Kingdom came about. Mm. So it's really two books in one. Mm. And I'm fear, mm. but that had a lot of China poems. No, A Kind of Kingdom had a lot of um, Borneo poems mm. in it. Mm. They're just such good little commentaries on the everyday and on life. Mm. Does, do you find yourself noticing something and then thinking, I've got to write that down or I've, I've got to capture it? Or how do you, how do you work, I suppose? How does, how does it all, what is the process oh, I for don't you? Know. Um, poems are sort of fleeting. They, 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 just as you described, uh, perhaps an image, mm. perhaps an idea, perhaps just a couple of words or a something I've seen or a picture and yeah. um, I just, then I start playing the associative game and, and following it where it goes. Yeah. Um, I know when it's right and Joan knows when it's right too. She's got a pretty unerring ear. Your first editor? Yeah, bullshit editor, bullshit yeah. detector. Yeah. Uh, and she'll tell me, oh this works or this, no it doesn't work. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. You're doing something you've done before. Or, yeah. Yeah. This, this, so this one here, so rat tickling, there was mm. a few in here that I um, thought in particular, they seemed to come out at me for, for various reasons. One I thought, the painter, or just called painter. Um, ah, yes, yes. With deft little brush sto strokes, he turns the aquamarine to charcoal. He stops the gouges and sands them smooth. The pillar has a barbecue burn. He plasters the blister and anoints it with acrylic. He matches the navy blue lacquer with a rare finesse and he mitres the moulding with jigsaw precision. Under his breath he whistles, let us now praise famous men and bring me my bow of burning gold. He drinks his coffee black with one teaspoon of sugar and he drives a beaten up brown Chrysler Imperial. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, were you having painting done at your house at the time? I don't know. No, I'm, I'm quite into My dad was... Um I'd like to say my dad was an artisan. Mm. There's a poem about <laughs> Peter the Great where I riff, riff on that idea. Um, no, but I'm very interested in the, the artistry of the wood turner, the metal worker, the paint, you know, the yes. house painter type. People. These people that take have such, such huge underappreciated skills. My, yeah. And my, my dad was great with metal, mm. um, he's great with wood. Um, he, I've got a poem about a. He built himself a boat. Wow! In his eighties, um, a clinker dinghy, sailing dinghy, oh. entirely from plans, and uh, put it in his garage. And by the time he'd finished it, uh, he was too old to um, to sail it. To sail it, and uh, or even to move it because mm. it was far too heavy. We got him out in a couple of times. I'm not a sailor, so. <laughs> I think you you capture in that paint in that poetry uh, poem mm, the painter mm. um, just exactly what you've said that mm. they are artisans yes. people who are who everyone else refers to as the laborer or the trader oh, yeah. you know and they're, they're actually more than oh, simply absolutely crazy, that, yes, they're, yes. they're people who can work magic on a house on a piece of wood on a piece of metal mm, mm. and the, yet the, I love the way that you then balance it with that yeah, despite the, being this incredible artisan he just has black coffee and drives a beaten up. That's right. The oh. English, the English uh, writer Alan Garner, who, who wrote um, fantasy books for younger people, but um, wrote a whole lot of lovely books set in the uh, north of England among stone workers and, and, 
and uh, masons and carpenters using all the language and it's just they're just gorgeous things yeah yeah and even when you talk about connie's autograph oh yes connie's autograph another poem leant backwards a little drunkenly rocked on its heels as if defying the wind it's just brilliant that observation on someone's someone's signature yes you know um and what it sort of tells you about the person Mm. or Mm. their Mm. mood or whatever and uh, you know and then you say push me over push me over if you dare she taught her cockatoo to shriek to shake his cheeky pink head feathers and parkinson's did come along and shook her hand then shook her name right off the page mm, yeah what a moving she was uh, my great grandfather's second wife uh, right. lovely old lady yeah he met her on the pool a pier at blackpool where she was a singer <laughs> came back came back to new zealand with her in the 30s it's a long and very involved and complicated oh. family story. Fabulous. But I'm not going to tell it to you now. No. It would take too long and it's too crazy. Mm. Uh, but yeah, but she was a nice old girl. I but she obviously her. made an impact on you as well. And that yeah, well, I'm the, I'm the oldest son of an oldest son of an oldest son. Ah. And they all sighed young. They all sighed about 20. I, I broke that model because Tom wasn't born until I was 27, I think. Yeah. Um, but that meant that when my grandfather, my great-grandfather died, mm. I was 20. Mm. And I'd grown up with this generation yeah. of generation of generation. So I knew him really, really well. Mm. Um, wow. Goodness me. So, well, shall we move on from the poetry? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because you obviously also moved on from poetry. Mm. Um, and, well, I've got, I mean, so fantasy books. Mm. Mm. Why fantasy? What is it about fantasy? I oh, love it. Love it. Um, Was there a particular fantasy sort think, of book I, that you've read? I thought about it. I think, I think fantasy sort of cognate with poetry. Um, they're both really imagination and recreation of a, of a world in, in imaginative, much more imaginative terms and sort of social realism and this sort of thing. It's a way of stretching reality, stretching. And the first book, um, under the rotunda was sort of a gift. Uh, <laughs> yeah, tell me about that because you mentioned that you do say that it was a bit of a, a an unexpected well, gift. Uh, again, I um, I've told this story quite often, but I, I was walking our huge and ungovernable dog, Scary. I must have been walking. To, okay, must have been must have been North Hagley Park where where the rotunda by the hospital yes. where the rotunda is, and I saw this rotunda. I loved I love the word rotunda. I love mm. I love words yeah. and and a word like that suddenly started saying rotunda rotunda, and uh, feeling it in my mouth and playing around with it, and I started putting rhymes with it, you know, uh, thunder and uh, wonder, and I thought yeah, a poem, thunder, wonder, yeah. rotunda, and then I found some other words that like blunder. Mm-hmm. Was it had been the name of our cat? Uh, <laughs> Under the cat, Chunder. Yeah. Uh, it didn't seem to be, but a, a comic poem. And then I put the preposition with it under the rotunda. Yeah. And uh, just played with that idea. And now I started thinking about the little door at the base of the rotunda, and I said, "Well, what's that for?" And I do writing classes with kids, and I use this as an exercise. So, what's the real reason? What's, you know, what's the real reason, yeah. air quotes? And uh, and I thought, well, it's a rotunda. It's got, you associate that with band people, band players. Uh, little door, too small for band players, unless 
they were somehow miniaturized. Yeah. How would they be miniaturized? Why would they be miniaturized? And that, that involved, would have to be magic somehow. Why would anybody want to miniaturize a brass band? Um, well, it would involve a magician. It could be an evil magician, but then there were a dime a dozen. Everybody was doing evil magicians. Yeah. It could be a, an incompetent magician. Yeah. <laughs> a stupid magician. <laughs> Perhaps they'd been, perhaps they'd called in magic to make them play their band, band, their music, musical instruments better because they weren't playing properly, yeah. and uh, and he went shazam and waved waffle dust and suddenly, instead of playing musically, <laughs> wrong wrong spell, yeah. And then of course they had to hide under there. They had to somehow find a way of getting big again. How would that happen? Why? And, and all this sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I started yeah. thinking out, nothing out, a whole sort of series of solutions to these crazy problems. Mm. And by the time I got the dog home, I had uh, pretty much yep. worked out the whole storyline. And it was a three-week school holidays and uh, two-week school holidays. Anyway, I got home and I, Lissy was nine at the time, and I went tippy 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 and wrote out the first chapter. And I said, well, "What do you reckon?" Printed it off and. She rushed away, and she's a smart little cookie. Yeah. She's a smart big cookie now. Yeah. And came back and said, and I say this to the kids, I say, she said, the nicest thing to me a writer can hear. Yeah. What's that? And they all come up with those. I said, no, no, the, the nicest thing is what happens, happens next. next. Absolutely. And I said, I know what happens next. She said, well, go on. So I wrote the next chapter. Yeah. And between her goading me on. Wonderful. I'd finished the book within the holidays. How fabulous. Um, and it's not a terribly long book, perhaps about 30, 35,000 words or something. Perfect for a nine-year-old. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that's the one I sent off to print, and I said, yeah. look, I've done this thing, because it was it happened quite quickly. So I sent him off the file, and uh, that's when he came back, he said, we'll do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> and it was such fun. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it allowed me to play. And uh, so with Quentin then, every two or so years, I was publishing another novel. Not all of them worked and some of them I've, I've put in the bottom drawer. The Quentin James refers to is Quentin Wilson, who runs a small independent publishing house based in Christchurch, Quentin Wilson Publishing. Quentin first started publishing James's work when he ran Hazard Press. Yeah. I think of the f- six, six or so I wrote, mm. he, he did four of them. Mm. The last book of mine he published was the uh, Assassin of Gleam, which is a different sort. Oh, of, I've got that too. A different sort of book altogether. Mm. That yeah, that is right there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fabulous. Well, it yeah, yeah, and it's got a very, it's got an equally fabulous second volume, and it's got an equally fa- fabulous third volume. And wow. None of which have been published, uh, and they they were they were things I wrote in two thousand when I had the Burns Fellowship. Wow. And. Uh, and Ray, I had an agent by then, mm. and Ray Richards was trying to market those. Mm. We, we got very excited because he thought W. Norton was going to be interested in doing them, but, but no. And eventually he said, well, go back to Quentin. Quentin, Quentin will publish them for you. So that, was, that, that came out. And, mm. uh, but the receivers came in. What and, a shame. Uh, and the second one, this is a, a tragic irony, if you go... <laughs> If you Google the title, it's called The Mistress of Ufire, yeah. you'll see the cover yeah. and you'll see the little motto, out of print. Well, it was never in print. Oh. He'd sent it off to Singapore to be published when the, the oh. whole thing collapsed. 
Wow. So it may be that we'll bring them out as e-books. I'm not sure. That's possible because Quentin started publishing again. Then. Yes. Yeah. So that might happen. But I was really pleased with that, and that won the um, the science fiction award at the um, how do they call them? the Vogel Awards. And they're quite a different kettle of fish. But I just I really had fun with that book. We're now going to take a few minutes to hear a reading from the Assassin of Gleam. This is from Chapter 13, Consultations, and is read by Robert Snow. The book is really dark and spooky, and a riveting read for both adults and young adults alike. I am really disappointed that the second and third novels have not been published. Turning back, Evan Twill found the grave eyes of Manfred Buffo studying him with equal curiosity. How can this house be of service to you? he asked. It was an unusual way to put it. The words, this house, suggested not an individual but a community, and the Markgrave wondered again momentarily at the nature and size of this community, whose aid he had come to enlist. He knew of the house's reputation, of course, but he could not know how much was fact and how much was dark legend. Buffo gestured to an oaken carver chair at the other side of the table, and as soon as the Markgrave was seated, he sat down himself, clearly waiting for the Markgrave's response. The century, began Evan Twill, is, as you know, about to end. Buffo nodded. He knew of the touching faith that people put in arbitrary numbers. Label a year and call it a beginning, or call it an ending. He could understand how knowing that his people were thinking about beginnings and endings could unsettle a ruler, especially a ruler such as Evan Twill. However, he said nothing, merely waited patiently for the Markgrave to continue. Evan Twill glanced towards the window and the line of his scar was presented to Buffo. There is a story abroad, he continued, a story of a so-called maiden who will arrive with the new century and bring with her the destruction of my house, my dynasty, before nodded again. The Markgrave faced him once more, angered by what he felt compelled to report. It is arrant nonsense, of course, the splashings of the swill, superstitious stupidity. But it is a story that seems to have taken hold. There has been much tavern talk, my spies tell me. Gossip. The story is embroidered, developed, you know how it goes. And my men report that each night the walls of the city are disfigured by the word maiden. I see, said Buffo. He could see the Markgrave's growing agitation, and he could understand it. The whispers, the tale passed from hand to hand, and with each passage growing from tale to a myth and from a myth to a certainty. He could see how belief in such a story could alter the hearts of men and women, make them dangerous with hope, wild with expectation. It is like a brush fire, said Evan Twill. It is growing beyond control. There is no way. I cannot see how to extinguish it. If you ignore it, asked Buffo, let the century end willy-nilly. The Markgrave shook his head violently. It is the idea of the maiden. It is the idea that gets stronger and stronger. Such an idea can move people to madness, to insurrection. Buffo nodded once more. 
So that was why the Markgrave of Gleam had sought the help of the House of the Toad. He did want a death, but not an ordinary death. He was more than capable of arranging an ordinary death himself. How do you kill an idea? demanded the Markgrave. There was another silence as Buffo considered this problem. He made his characteristic cathedral of his fingers and looked for a time almost to be praying. Finally, he looked up at the angry man before him. I think it can be arranged, he said simply. Evan Twill leaned forward in his seat. There was a stillness in the room that he found calming. The pulse in his temple had stopped throbbing as it was wont to at times of angry frustration. How? he asked. Oh, very simply, said Manfred Buffo. If you want to kill an idea, first you must make it incarnate. The Markgrave frowned. What do you mean? You make it flesh. I still don't understand. Think about it, said Buffo gently. The citizens of Gleam want a maiden? Then we must give them a maiden. Give them a maiden? Yes, said Buffo, as if explaining a very simple proposition. We give them a maiden, a real, live, flesh-and-blood maiden. Even as he said this, he thought of his new apprentice, and he remembered the evening the young man had knocked at his door. He remembered the older man with silver hair and a beard, and he remembered the young woman in a green cape, the sister of the young swallow. Although the light had been dim, he recalled that she had been fair and of surpassing beauty. Evan Twill stared at the old man, who had suddenly seemed quite abstracted. Manfred Buffo was recalled by the Markgrave's stare. And then we kill her, he added. You can, you can see, um, see that through, oh, I thought through most of your writing, well, the, well, the writing that I read anyway, mm -hmm. definitely you enjoy it. You I know? love it, yeah. And obviously, um, so we, when did you when did you give up the teaching completely? And oh, just recently. I, I, um, I and became a full time writer. More or less, yes. Well, I, I had I'd, I've been very lucky in that over the years I've had quite a lot of residencies yeah. and fellowships and things. I had a year. I had a year at um, Otago. When I get them, I just I just binge. I just go. Whoosh. Yeah. So at Otago, I wrote. Um, the novel I went down to write hasn't been published yet and probably never will be, although it's really good. Why won't it be published, about do you think? Brunei because it's now out of date. It's, uh, right. you know, it's set in Brunei among, it's set among expatriates, the comic novel among expatriates behaving badly. Right. And, and do you uh, think now that the, um, that the, uh, the context has changed? Yeah, well, it's, it's set so, about the time of Diana's death. You see, right. In fact, that death features in the book, so mm. unless it sort of comes out as a historical curiosity, mm. it's long before TikTok and all those wonderful yeah. things. It's interesting, isn't it, how mm. um, as the world changes, not all writing can move That's right. with it, That's I suppose. Right. Yeah. Um, but then there is other other work which can mm. just mm. you can pick yes, up at any time and you can relate sad. to it. And yeah. I mean, I have to say, when I, that's how I felt about that. Mm. This lesson of um, mm. yeah. of Gleam. When I started reading that, I thought this is one that yeah. timeless in a way. Yeah. Well, there's there's uh, three there's three on the set. Mm. Um, they all deal with the central. There's the linking factor is one of the is the character of the, mm. the guy that gets suborned into that mm. assassin, assassin, brotherhood of assassins. Yeah. 
But uh, at Otago, I actually, I, I totted up, I wrote about half a million words. Wow. Because I wrote the, um, the mm. Brunei novel, which is called Nodding Donkeys. I wrote three of those, mm. the three of those, and a book of poems. Wow. And only, only the poems. In the 12 months. Yeah, in the 12 months. And then in 2012, I had the um, six months, again, and then needed Otago University with um, the Children's Writers Fellowship. Yeah. I did four. I did um, I did uh, Felix and the Red Rats. Oh yes, yeah. Oh, is, I've got that as an ebook. I don't have it. That's yep. great fun. Yeah, that um, is fun. <laughs> yeah, that is fun. And I did uh, the, the um, last of the of the Lob Lolly books. Oh the, yeah, the we set, haven't even talked about Lob Lolly. Set in the um, Caribbean. Mm. And I did uh, what was the third one I did. The third one. But anyway, Pen- Penguin did those. And the last one I did was a book called The Crater, Ghost Story Set on the West Coast. Uh, Quentin's bringing out this year. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. For those of you who missed it, that was The Crate, A Ghost Story. We're going to end part three of James Norcliffe's tale there. Thank you for listening to The Author's Tale. If you want to learn more about James's work, you can go to jamesnorcliffe.com. Next time we're going to discuss The Lob Lolly Boy and other works of genius. The Author's Tale is produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. It's engineered at Plains FM and is made with assistance from the Christchurch City Council and Creative Community Scheme.